Well, I hope you've all had a good night's sleep, that you're ready for a brand new day here at Hume Lake, this beautiful place that uh, you think about. Uh, we are here because back in the 1940s, 60 plus years ago, a group of people in this area had a dream of planting a camp in the middle of all these beautiful mountains. I, I'm sure most of you know the history of Hume Lake. I just read it the other night. For many, many years, it was a logging camp and um, with a thousand loggers here working the mountains and uh, sending their, their uh, logs down the mountainside to be uh, milled at the bottom uh, in the valley. And uh, then that whole thing goes belly up during the Depression. And some Christians begin to think about this territory being used for things like this. The money is found and uh, people work very hard. And so we're standing on the shoulders of two or three generations of very faithful people who believed all these years that what we're doing here this morning is possible. Uh, so we are the uh, beneficiaries, uh, the receivers of people long gone before us now with the Lord, but who had this incredible vision that people like you and me could be here uh, on an occasion like this. We should never stop being thankful for that. Now, one of the most uh, influential people in Gail's life and mine over the many years uh, is a man that some of you will have heard of, a lot of you probably not, because uh, he lived 100 years ago. His name was Oswald Chambers. And uh, he wrote a wonderful book that is still in publication and read by millions today called My Utmost for His Highest. Oswald was a kind of a strange duck of a man. He was so deeply committed to Jesus that uh, many people just, uh, when they got into his presence, they almost trembled at the holiness of this man, uh, the power of his spirit. He was just one in a million. And uh, he would give these talks, and he had a wife that, uh, whose name was Biddy, and uh, she, as a, a young woman, had been um, uh, sickly, and uh, decided that with her limit, physical limitations, the one thing she could do would be to become a stenographer, uh, a shorthand uh, person, which was very prominent in those days in business before the days of recorders and computers. And uh, so her goal was to become so good at stenography that one day she would be appointed the secretary to the prime minister of all England. And uh, she didn't get there because Oswald stood in her way and he married her. So she took shorthand on virtually everything that Oswald ever said in, in the meetings that he spoke at, usually with people in your age group. And when Oswald died in 1917, uh, he was a chaplain uh, with the YMCA, and he went to Egypt with his young family, and there he worked with the soldiers who were fighting in World War I. But when he died of, uh, I believe, peritonitis in 1917, his wife, Biddy, spent the rest of her life recording all the shorthand talks that he'd given, or that she shorthanded of the talks he'd given. So anybody who's a fan of uh, Oswald Chambers uh, comes to realize that virtually everything that we have of his in print was really what his wife said that he said. I don't know why I told you all that. It's just a very fascinating story that perhaps <laughs> you ought to use. But it does lead up to a quote which Oswald wrote in his journal just about 100 years ago this very day that we're sitting here, just months before he died. 
And in that quote, he says this, and it, it, it gets my attention. He writes, a great fear has been at work in my mind, and God has used it to arouse me to prayer. I came across a man whom I know, knew years ago. He was a mighty man of God. And now 10 years have come and gone, and I meet him again. And he is garrulous and unenlivened. Now, those are words that Victorian English people would have used at the turn of the 20th century. Garrulous and unenlivened. Garrulous, a word which describes people who talk a lot and say nothing. Superficial, running at the mouth. Garrulous, saying silly and stupid things. And then the other word, unenlivened, would suggest a man who at one time had been on fire for Jesus, had been followed and listened to by many, many people. But for some reason, which Oswald does not explain to us, the fire has gone out. The light in his eyes is gone. The power of his words are no longer existent. Oswald goes on and he says this about this man and what he gets out of himself. Now notice here, here's a good example of what we were trying to talk about yesterday. Uh, that you, you've, you've got to look at each situation and ask, what does this mean? And for Oswald writing in his journal, he wrestles with that. He's met this man. And now he says, how many people seem to become like that after 40 years of age? Now that, for many of you, is... 15, 18, 20 years from now. The fear of laziness and a loss of discipline has come home with a huge fear and has fairly driven me to God to keep me from ever forgetting what I owe him. Think about those words. Because in one way or the other, the day is probably going to come when some of you will say something like that. It's very easy at the age of 18, 20, 22 to have lots and lots of enthusiasm for Jesus. I've listened to the songs that you've sung this morning that the band has led us in. If, if you look through the words, the lines of those songs, they are filled with intentions and promises. The danger of those songs is that we think the job is done just because we sang them. And yet, throughout the entirety of the scriptures, the message keeps pounding through. God doesn't want just our words. He authenticates the words by the actions and the character of our lives. As I look back to my younger Christian days, I realize how often I found it easy to speak the words but when I got outside to the real world, where the boots go on the ground, how often the words became forgotten because all they were were my emotions caught up with the crowd, like cheering a football team as they drive down the field for a touchdown. What difference does it make if there are not actions which are embedded with the words? And that's what Oswald is saying here. He's watched a man cave in spiritually, or let me put it in language that we understand this week, a man that did not stay the course. 
And what he does instead of being critical of that man, apart from naming the situation, is he then directs it to himself. And is it possible that there's coming a day when I will not stay the course? I am driven, he says, to prayer. I'm driven to thought so that I will not fall into the same trap that the man I'm writing about has fallen into. One of the most important things Gail and I could say to you this week is that staying the course is something that has to be resolved to be done every day. On the first session of, of this series of talks, I talked about looking backwards into memory to understand the things that contributed to the person who I am to this day, the good things, sometimes the dark things. There are more than a few of you who have approached Gail and me over the last 36 hours, and you have talked with us about things in your memory which are very painful, things that you would be very reluctant to talk to most people about, but they're there, and you know that, that they're there, and they are informing many of your attitudes and the ways you'd go about doing things. Then last night we talked about looking to the future. If we're going to stay the course, then that means setting the course. And so last night, a few thoughts on where is this all taking us? Now this morning, maybe the third, or the, it's the third, but maybe the hardest of the four talks, uh, because it contains some ideas that many of us want to resist that many of us would like to pretend are not for us, but which are absolutely necessary if we are to stay the course and be the kind of women and men that God wants us to be over the next 50, 60 years of life. So what we did, and let me remind you of where I was going with this. Here's those words of the great Jewish theologian, not a Christian, nevertheless says some Christian things. One thing that sets us apart from animals is the boundless, unpredictable capacity for the development of our inner universe. Let me just comment on that statement again for another 60 or 80 seconds. The inner universe. The old spiritual masters of hundreds of years ago would have talked about a temple of the Holy Spirit. They would have talked about a, a sanctuary in the core of our being, where God wants to come and dwell. Heschel is saying the same thing. The inner universe, the inner temple, the inner sanctuary, the heart, the soul, all the same idea that inside of us is something so large that we cannot conceive of it, but that's where Jesus wants to establish the depth and the power of his presence. Now, how is that going to happen? How is that going to work? Well, one thing I can tell you for sure, and I think you all sense this, it isn't accomplished by just one bombastic emotional spiritual experience in an evening around a bonfire or in a meeting or watching a movie, and poof, in a moment, we are absolutely changed for the rest of our lives. Don't bet on it for a moment. That's not the way God does his work. He works in our lives over a lifetime, and he works mostly in people who, like Samuel, remember the first night, are able to say each day, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. At my age in life, what I've begun to discover is that it's been a lifetime of working in that inner 
universe or that inner sanctuary. That with every decade of life, there are new questions and new issues and new challenges, which when I was your age, I never knew existed. So I've got to ready myself each day for the coming years and the challenges that I will be faced with so that Jesus can make me more and more a person after his own heart. So as we looked at all this yesterday, the inner universe, we talked about memory. And then last night we talked about intentionality. Now let me raise this third subject, which I said some of you may not like. It's order. And this is the issue that's not about yesterday as much and not about tomorrow as much, but it's all about today. The kind of person I am and the kind of person I am becoming. St. Paul was very, very aware that each day he was becoming more and more transformed into the image of Christ. How did that happen? By reading books, going to meetings? No. Paul was aware every day, very conscious, that he had to discipline himself in certain areas of life so that God could enter through those areas of life and make him the kind of man he wanted him to be. So I'm going to put up on the screen now something that some of you are going to find intimidating. Others of you are going to find it guilt-ridden for you. And some of you will say, let me at it. But I, when I was a college student, used to hear over and over again, you've got to have order in your life. You've got to pick out those places which are weak spots and places that you consider to be strong spots and make sure that in them Jesus always has control. You'll fail many, many times. You'll fall on your face. You'll make a fool of yourself. But if you know where these areas are, you can always come back. One of my favorite movies from years ago, I'm sure most of you have seen it, is called Chariots of Fire. It's a 30-year-old it's a film. And it's the true story of Eric Little, the Englishman who ran in the Olympic Games of 1924. And in the movie, there is this wonderful moment when Eric Little is in one of these races out in the countryside in a small town, and he's running against the, the local boys. And the race begins, and they come down the straightaway and into the first turn. And one of those local boys very cleverly hits Eric Little in the ribs so hard with his elbow that Little loses his balance, and he falls onto the infield grass. The filmmaker treats this moment brilliantly. He switches to extreme slow motion. And you watch Eric Little just slowly sink to the grass. And then he's there, and he, he looks up, and he sees all the other runners going around the turn beginning to disappear. And for about 25 seconds, in slow motion, you watch Little's face as he realizes what's happened to him, this injustice, this breaking of the rules. And beginning in that moment, you know what the great question is that's forming in his mind. Shall I get up and run again? Or shall I just quit? I would have quit. I grew up in a family, particularly under the influence of a mother, who never finished anything. My mother, God love her, she, she took jobs, she quit in two weeks. She would intend to do things around the house, clean it up, change it, do this, that, and the other thing, but she never got things done. 
And it occurred to me when I was a college student that I probably had inherited some of that character trait. I call it the quitter's gene. And I realized that in my life, the temptation, the overwhelming temptation was when anything became too tough for me to handle, I just quit and decide to do something else. My life was pockmarked with these examples of quitting, of not finishing. And in college, I faced a very serious crisis. Would I keep on going through life like that, quitting, quitting, quitting? Or would I, I face this question straight on and become a person who finished things? That's one of the most important single character decisions that anyone will ever make. So here's Eric Little on the infield grass, and he's asking the question of the quitter's gene. Shall I quit, or shall I get up and run again? And you're the moviegoer, and you're watching the screen, and you don't know what the answer is. You don't know what he's going to do. And then suddenly, the film resumes regular speed, and Little pounces to his feet, and he starts running harder than ever. And for the next Many seconds you watch as he catches up slower, slowly, and slowly until he's finally at the back of the runner's pack as it's headed down the backstretch. And then he begins to pass one guy after another. And when the race finishes, Eric Little crosses the finish line first. And if you're a runner like I used to be, you are absolutely enthralled with this moment. You've been there. You've done that. That's the kind of person you want to be. But most of us don't become that kind of person automatically. This is the work of the Christian life. This is the place where things get tough, where you just don't sing about things or have little Bible study groups about things, but you go out and you do the work of the Christian. Having said all that, now let me show you what I warned you was a bit intimidating. Here's the outline for the rest of the morning. What I've put up on the screen are 10 different categories of life. Some of you may say, you haven't put up enough, or some of you will say, you've put up too many. But this is Gordon speaking, and I've got the floor for the moment, so you'll have to listen to my opinion. Maybe in some ways this reflects these 10 little, er not little, these 10 categories. M maybe someone could read them through, and they could analyze a little bit of my life. They could see in these categories the 50, 60-year battle challenge that I have faced as a Christian man. Because I could tell you stories about every one of these categories and how I had to learn in these areas how to discipline myself and to overcome. I used to listen to a lot of sermons, and it's not that they were bad sermons, but they were all about, oh, just... Get filled with the Holy Spirit and he'll take care of everything. And, and I love that message because it meant I didn't have to do anything. But that kind of sermon didn't work for me. If it works for you, wonderful. But it didn't work for me. What I came to realize that in every one of these categories, Jesus wanted to be Lord. Jesus wanted to be in command, if you please, of these areas. But if that was going to happen, it would be because every day, I was looking at these areas and I was practicing like an athlete to become victorious in each one of them. So let me talk about several of these categories. I'll, I'll skip over one or two or just pay lip service to them and I'll try to pick the ones that I think we all need to be thinking about on this Tuesday morning.
You'll notice in the first column, what at the top I've put is the word physical. This refers to the place of my body in my life as a Christian. It's the way I treat my physical self, the Gordon you see. In ancient theological history, there were thinkers that liked to separate the body from the soul and would say to us, the body is not important. Do anything you want with it, but it doesn't count. God is not really interested in the body. He's only interested in the soul. That's bad theology. That's really not what we're learning from the scriptures. What we're learning is that body and soul are all part of one whole person. So my treatment of my body is a Christian act of stewardship or responsibility. I'm not sure I've always believed that. It's become more and more important to me in the second half of life when I begin to realize that my body is becoming more and more unreliable. When I was the age of most of you in this room, I, I didn't think much about my body except as an athlete, and I went out to training and conditioning every afternoon to be able to win races. But beyond that, I just assumed the body was the body and it would always be here and I would always be healthy. Didn't matter what I ate, didn't matter how much I rested, it would always be there. But somewhere around my 45th or 46th year of life, my body began to send me messages. And the messages sounded something like this, don't take me for granted. Don't ignore me. You have your best years of life ahead of you. You need a good body to carry all of your ideas around with you. You're going to go to Hume Lake someday. You better have a body that will get you there. <laughs> and so I began to slowly become aware that if I was going to be God's man, in whatever way God wanted that to be, I would have to take care of my body. Among the disciplines is the care of the physical side of myself. Now, when I talk, and, and, and many of the audiences that Gail and I talk to, uh, I'll be with an audience later this week, are people about twice your age. Uh, when you talk about body, they get real serious because they're, they're feeling all the effects of a deteriorating body. Y you're not yet, so I have to really push you harder. <laughs> what does it mean to be physically disciplined? I'll give you three, three subcategories. It means eating well. Eating well so that the body receives the kind of strength and nourishment it needs. Not filling my body all the time with unhealthy things. It's all right to binge every once in a while. Uh, uh, I won't tell you how many times a week I do that. But, uh, <laughs> but it means making sure, and, and I, I must tell you quite frankly, I don't know whether I'd be as good at this as I think I am if I was not married to Gail because she's the person who watches the nutrition in our family and uh, makes sure that, that we're, we're doing this well. The second thing about taking care of my body is adequate rest. And, and here I, I'm almost ready to, to run because uh, I don't know many young people who understand rest. Uh, they understand play and pleasure and all-night functions of one type or another, and yet you got to rest. The Bible talks about resting one day a week. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is holy unto the Lord your God. On that day you shall do no, rest, no, no work. Implication, if I'm doing no work, I'm resting. And what happens when I rest? All things start coming back to orderliness. 
When I was a university student, one of my fun moments was to go down to the student union and, and shoot a couple of games of pool. And you know what a pool table's like if someone's played, especially if I've been the player. The balls are scattered all over the place. One or two are in the pocket. Some are on the floor. <laughs> but you want to start a new game. What do you do? You go to the wall. You get the triangle rack. You put it on the white spot at the other end of the table. You put all the circles and solids inside the triangle, the eight ball at the certain place. You take the rack off, put it back on the wall. You go to the other end of the table, and you shoot the cue ball down the table. One day I was looking at that and I had a holy thought, which is not usual in a pool hall. That beautiful lined up group of, of pool balls, that's what it looks like when I've rested. My whole body comes back to order because every day there are going to be the cue balls which are going to keep sailing down, and little bit by little, with every shot of the cue ball, that beautiful formation of balls begins to split apart and go in every direction. That's life as you're going to live it for the next 50 years. Every day, life's going to slowly disintegrate and fall apart. And only well-rested people will be able to make their way through it. In addition to rest and nutrition, I also discipline my body by exercise. When I'm young, I am so physically uh, in action that sometimes uh, deliberate exercise is not that necessary. But as I get older, it's very important that I keep my body under stress in the right sort of way so that exercise, rest, and nutrition are all part of the discipline of the body that God has given to me. By the way, I'll throw this in for free. As I get up each morning and, and walk my miles as part of my exercise, I make an observation that bothers me. For every 10 people out there exercising, nine of them are women. And I say to myself, what's happening to men these days? Where are they? What are they doing when all these women are out there exercising, jogging, walking, lifting weights and all this kind of stuff. It's amazing to me, and I, I credit women for doing this. I just wish there were more of you men who understood you've got to take care of your bodies and treat them carefully day by day. It is an act of worshiping God. So much for number one. I won't take as much time as some of the others, but I just enjoy talking about that. I feel the same way about the second of the disciplines on the screen, the discipline of the mind. Can I be blunt? Many of us in this room have grown up in a Christian tradition which does not challenge people to sharpen their minds. When I went to Sunday school, all they wanted were right answers. They didn't want sharp questions. And if you're going to be a person of faith, you're going to have a lot of questions. And you know what? Some of those questions are not going to be easily answered, if at all. The first big question I ever asked came at the age of six. I mean, imagine that. At the age of six, I asked a question. My Sunday school teacher was talking about the perfect state of everything in heaven, that there would be no bad things that would happen, that nothing would go wrong. People would do, and when they did things, everything would be done right. So I'm sitting there as a six-year-old, and I have just learned the game of baseball. Raise my hand. Miss Cummins, 
if we play baseball in heaven, would it not be true that the pitcher would always throw a strike? And the batter would always hit it for a home run. But the center fielder would always catch the ball so that the batter was out. How can that happen? My Sunday school teacher fixed me with a stare and she said, Gordon, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. <laughs> Fifty years later, I remember this exchange. And I think to myself, that wasn't a stupid question. That was a brilliant question. It was just the way a six-year-old ought to look at life and reality and to place a great theological question which people have struggled with for 2,000 years and put it inside a game of baseball. <laughs> but it hurt deeply when she called it a stupid question. And for some time, I was reluctant to ever ask another question in church. There ought to be no safer place to deal with questions than inside the bracket of faith in Jesus Christ. And young men and women, I want to say to you carefully this morning, keep your minds sharpened every day. Read, read, read. Not just the Christian literature with all of its nice answers, but read the hard stuff. Read the questions people ask. Not only read, but surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Ask them questions. One of the things that's really impressed Gail and me during our time here with you at Human Lake is how many good questions you have been asking. We rarely meet people who are asking the quality of questions that you have shot at us during the hours that we've been together. That's a sign of, of a disciplined mind. Surround yourself with people who are better than you. Always keep asking the question through the day, what does this mean? What can I learn from it? What does God have to say in this situation? So we must be people who discipline and keep growing our minds. For me, one of the most painful things is to realize that most Christian people stop growing in their 40s just when they should be growing faster than ever before. We're in our 70s. Every day we're trying to grow, to learn new things, to confront new questions. You want to be like that until the day Jesus says, life is over here. The third discipline is the discipline of the emotions. God has given to us a series of emotions like the dashboard on a car. Emotions are designed to tell us what's going on deep within ourselves. If I experience the emotion of anger, it's because something deep within me is reacting to something which has happened in the past or is happening now. And the anger awakens me to the fact that something is wrong. I've done something wrong or somebody else has done something wrong. That's a simple way to put it. Unfortunately, too many people allow these emotions to become the part that rules their lives. They act on the emotions instead of simply saying, what does this emotion mean? We have too many people who are run by their emotions. And so the Bible calls us over and over again to discipline our emotions, to make sure that they do what God meant them to do. But people who are leaders, who are influences, are always able to keep their emotions in check, to express them, to acknowledge that they're there. I feel sad. I feel angry. I'm full of joy. This is wonderful. These are all emotional statements. And they're there for a purpose, but they ought 
not to control us. The fourth area of discipline, motivations. Why am I doing the things I'm doing? Why do I find myself sometimes wanting to be the leader, the controller? Why do I become competitive? Why am I seeking out this direction in life? The answers can be good and sometimes they can be bad. What are my motivations for the things I do, the way I treat people? The reasons I want to do things, to be in certain places, to know certain people, I always want to be looking at my motivations because as a Christian, the primary motivation which ascends above all is the following of Jesus, following Jesus and being a pleasure to him in the way I'm living my life of service each day. Then there's my ego. Every one of us has one of those. Some of our egos are larger than others. Egos have a tendency to want to grow, to make us ambitious, to make us want to attract the attention of other people, or just to make sure that we're not put down in ways that diminish us. So the ego is always there. One of the interesting things about the Older Testament is this whole list of kings of Israel, beginning with Saul and going all the way out to King Zedekiah. Virtually every king of Israel fails because of ego problems. No one fails more spectacularly than Solomon. Moses, concerned centuries before about the ego of kings, says something like this in Deuteronomy 17. A king ought not to have many horses and chariots. He ought not to have a lot of silver and gold. He ought not to have many wives lest they lead his, his, lead his heart astray. Then Moses goes on, and the king shall write these words down with his own hand. He doesn't dictate them. He doesn't write them with a computer. He writes them in longhand. Write them and read these words every day of his life. Then listen to this. Lest he consider himself better than his brothers. And there you have the problem of leadership from that day all the way to this day people who consider themselves better than their brothers. That's ego. We follow a Christ who on a critical night had dinner with his disciples, took off his outer clothing, filled a basin with water, took his towel, and washed the feet of his disciples. The most menial, degrading, humble task in that culture that anyone could do. The Son of God washing the feet of his disciples. Why does he do this? Well, most of all, because he wants to show these disciples the humility that comes in the Christ-following community. But he also wants to show them how important it is to defeat ego, which will always be growing like a cancer down through the years of our lives. So Solomon doesn't read what Moses said. And he starts out very quickly in life as an extremely successful king. He's known as the wisest man in all the world. And yet when you get to the end of Solomon's story, you read this paragraph. Solomon had many, many horses and chariots. Solomon had enormous amounts of silver and gold. Solomon had many wives, and they led his heart astray. By the way, that's money, sex, and power. And then the follow-up line, and God grew angry with Solomon. 
And Solomon ends his life in disgrace. Why? Because he cannot manage his ego. To discipline myself in the area of ego is to make sure that with regularity, I take the end spot in line. I pay attention to the agenda of other people. I don't always keep talking about myself. I don't always do the things that ends up with everybody applauding me. I want people to know that I'm a person touched by the grace of God and without his mercy, I would not be here. And as the years go by, that's the kind of thing we need to work out each day of our lives. Adversity. Our culture would like to teach us that you can go all the way through life without any rough moments. Just don't believe it. I don't want to be a, a gloom and doom person, but I'm going to just tell you, before the end of the life you live, you will probably find that you've experienced six or seven or eight crash and burn experiences of one type or another. Somebody will break your heart. Something will happen that you never anticipated. There will be an occurrence that you cannot control. And that will be the great proving moment of your Christian life. In the darkness of that hour, can you trust God? Can you rely upon him to lead you through the darkness? Can you allow yourself room to have faith and trust in God because everything else is beyond your management? It's an adversity that we discover how deep and how strong our Christian life really is. I've put work habits up there. Some of you won't have a problem with this in the world. Others of us will. How to order my life day by day so that I do the right things and I do the right things rightly that I work out of my mix of gifts, that I do the things I believe God has called me to do, and I do them faithfully, and I do them excellently. And even in my work, people see the trademark of God's presence because I have disciplined the way I do my work. An important part of my life is being a writer, writing books, writing articles. There were a number of people who contributed to the beginning of my, my writing career. But one of them, I'll never forget, he was my journalism professor in seminary. He was tough. I would write what I thought were brilliant pieces, and he would just slash them apart with a razor blade. One day I handed in a piece, and it came back three or four days later, and on the back page were these words from my journalism professor. Gordon, if I had written this piece of paper, I would be ashamed to put my name on it. That's pretty painful. That's humiliating. That's discouraging if you want to take it that way. But it was very important for me to receive that painful sentence. And to this day, I never write anything that I plan for publishing that I don't read the final copy before it's sent in and ask myself the question, will this piece of paper please my journalism professor? And if I can say yes to that, it goes. If I have my doubts, I do it over. When you're in school, are you content to do C plus work when you have an A mind? Are you handing in things that are beneath your potential and your capability? Worshiping and following the Lord Jesus Christ is giving your best 
in all that you've committed yourself to do. We're going to learn sooner or later that the discipline of our finances is a very important part of the Christian life. That what we do with the money we make, no matter how much we make to the wealthy side or to the poverty side, still God has a claim on what we do with our money. Money is power. And so a Christian learns from the very beginning that he or she is going to discipline themselves to certain principles of money. A lot of us, if we make good sums of money, we don't have to spend every dime of it on ourselves. We don't have to keep building bigger homes, getting nicer cars, doing all the things that, that, that the wealthy class likes to do. For a Christian, for example, the action of getting more and more money is an opportunity to be increasingly generous, to make sure that from my labor, there are other people who are blessed by the faithfulness of God in my life. Stay out of debt. Don't get yourself in a position where when God calls you to do something, you can't do it because money is a problem. So godly men and women discipline their finances from the various early years of life. You all know the story of the little boy who was headed for Sunday school and his mother gave him two nickels, one for the offering plate and one for himself. On the way is to church, he's walking. This is an old story. Uh, the boy drops one of the nickels and it rolls across the pavement and into the sewer. And the little boy says, well, Lord, there goes your nickel. Uh, that's one way to look at finance. Another way is to say, it's the Lord's money, all of it. How does he want me to use it? Here's this comment I brought up a little while ago, but now it's repeated. That even rest and play are a discipline. Some of us in this room are driven to want to please everybody. We will work 22 hours a day if we possibly can, only if we will hear the applause and experience the respect of people. You and I, as followers of the Lord, don't have that luxury. God has said to us, you can work this much, but then there must be rest. And oh, by the way, if you have friends and loved ones, there must be play. There must be laughter. There must be exercise. There must be the experience of beautiful things. And when people bring the rest and play component into their disciplines, life becomes far richer. Now here we are at the end. You would have expected that I could have talked about this one the whole morning, if not the whole two days that we're together. But I've put it in just one of the slots of the disciplines, and yet it sits there as probably the most important of them all. When do you personally worship God? This is a toughie for a lot of us. We can get very, very excited about quiet times and how we should be doing all these correct things, working through Bible studies, and usually our intentions last for two or three weeks. Only the best of us are able to keep it in continuance, so we're always getting fresh starts. Nevertheless, there is the significance that in the life of the believer, on a regular basis, there's always those moments of withdrawal from the crowds, from the noise, from the distractions of life, into the quietness where I can commune with God. Take a few minutes today and read through the latter half of the book of Mark, chapter 1. It really starts with Jesus being involved on a very busy Sabbath day. 
He's in the synagogue in the morning. He's healing people. He's casting out evil spirits. In the afternoon, he's at Peter's house healing Peter's mother-in-law. And a hint tells me that was a real job. And people coming all during the afternoon into the evening, uh, asking questions, problems, crises. It's an exhausting day. And then in verse 35, Mark writes this. Very early the next morning, Jesus arose. He went out into the hillside, and he spent his time in prayer. Gail and I have been to that hillside. It, it's a huge hillside, several miles wide and, and up. So any place you're there, you can say, this is probably the place where Jesus was there that morning. It was somewhere. But I'm romanced by the notion that the Son of God was disciplined and that he brought order into his life on that day following the Sabbath. And he went in quiet to be with the Lord. What did Jesus and his heavenly Father talk about that morning in that quiet, isolated moment? Well, none of us really know, but, but I'll tell you what I think is a safe deduction because of what happens when the morning is, or that time is over. After a while, Jesus being alone in communion with his Father, Mark then says, and then Peter and the other disciples came looking for him. Remember those words. It's amazing how often many of us decide to go into a time of worship and quiet, and some of the best people around us will interrupt us and distract us. And without even realizing it, they are clawing us away from what we're supposed to be doing in that moment, and that's to worship God. Sometimes you can do nothing about that. At other times, you just simply have to build higher fences around yourself. But every one of us on a regular basis needs those quiet moments when there's no noise, only the scriptures. In my case, maybe yours, a journal, a book or two about Christian themes, but times of quiet so that God and I can speak to each other in whatever way that happens. So Peter and the disciples come and they interrupt the worship. And what do they say? Everyone is looking for you. We want you to come back and do more of what you did yesterday. We want you to come back. We want you to do more good things. It sounds awfully legitimate, doesn't it? Would you have gone back? I would have. I mean, my best friends are asking me to come back. Would you have interrupted your worship time and gone with them? I have a fear that I would have. But Jesus says, no. I have other towns and villages to go to. In other words, I have to stay the course and do the things that my father called me to do in these days, not what you think I should be doing. And in so doing, Jesus responds and gets on with the tasks of the day. I'm going to suggest to you that the only reason Jesus had the strength and determination to do that was that he'd been in the presence of the Father. You and I cannot afford, even in our young lives, not to have spiritual discipline, which takes us into the quiet moment, not the noisy moments, the quiet moments, where God can speak. Well, Oswald Chambers says, I've met a man 
He used to be this, he's now that. What's the problem? I think the problem is the man lost touch with his disciplines. Let me show you a comment that I picked up from an old 85-year-old marathon runner who when asked why he did this, why he pushed himself, said these words. The pain of discipline, of pushing yourself to do things you really don't want to do, but doing them because it's for your longer range good and keeping the course. The pain of discipline is less than the pain of regret. The world is filled with men and women who got off to good starts at your age, but they didn't keep the disciplines. And 25 years later, their lives are not marked with a kind of greatness in the eyes of God. Rather, their lives are marked with regret. That's a kind of a negative way to end a talk, but I'd like you to think about it. And now I want to invite Gail to come up and join me for a few moments and let's find out what she has to say and how she reacts to my comments and see how much you can agree with either one of us. Sweetheart, you want to come up? You don't have a mic. You have a mic. Thank you very much, Jacob. Okay. Boy, when you take off your coat like that, I know you're loaded for bear. <laughs> so talk to me. Which one of these things is most important to you Of today? the ten? Well, or even reflect better on, than that. When you were um, with Campus Crusade back in your 20s, which one of these disciplines did you find most difficult and which ones played the greatest role in your life? Well, most people probably would have said it was the ego problem. Gordon's too self-assured. Um, he acts as if he knows everything. Um, so ego would have been a real difficult one for me because somehow I was not able to convince the people around me that I had a genuinely humble heart. So I would think about that. I think secondly, the spiritual disciplines would have been very difficult because it was my nature to be a person of action. And um, I could not find it easy as a young man to correlate time alone with God with the effectiveness of my life. It seemed to me that they could match up, but on the other hand, they might not. You remember, even in our early years when we were married, I used to say to you, and it used to frustrate you, I'd say, I don't understand it. Some weeks I pray a lot, and my sermon on Sunday is awful. And then there are weeks when I don't get to pray at all, and my sermon is powerful. Explain that to me, and you know, we would talk about that kind of thing. But, but over the many, many years, uh, beginning back to when you mentioned, I, I do think the spiritual disciplines were ripe dead center because um, it was challenging to become quiet before the Lord, <coughs> to think, to brood, to reflect, and allow God to penetrate the deepest parts of my life. Would you say that pain played a, a great role in, in writing the ego? And oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think when you, when you go through, I, you know, I mentioned it a moment or two ago, the, the, you go through the adversities. It's, it's in the adversities that all of your self-confidence is shattered. 
and you begin to realize the things you've been depending upon only work as long as the times are good. But it's in the moments of pain, when you've really failed, when you've been humiliated, when you're ashamed, when someone has turned away from you. Those are the moments when you go deepest in the presence of God and you learn things you should have learned in better times. How do you think the, <coughs> the disciplines of <coughs> your inner life helped you when you went through the, the surgery a year ago? What was, uh, I remember you saying to me one morning, you know, it really doesn't matter. When I look at Philippians 1.21, Paul says, hey, if I stay here, this is good for you. But if I go, it'll be wonderful to be with Christ. Well, as you know, I've read that chapter over the years a thousand times. I've even memorized it. And, and it's interesting, you don't know when that chapter is going to spring into life and become the thing that forms you. But in the moment you're talking about when I had to face tumor surgery on the brain. And there, there was a question of whether or not the knife could slip and, and uh, an artery could be breached and I would not come out of that thing alive. You, you had to think about those kind of things. So you go back to the scriptures and you pull up a paragraph like that in which Paul says, um, if I die, I get to be with Christ. If I live, I get to keep on serving. And I can't figure out which is better. In other words, Paul is saying dying doesn't mean a thing to him. It's like a doorway into two good options. And that's what comes, I think, out of discipline. You discipline yourself in the good moments so that in the dark moment like that, uh, you have the confidence and assurance you badly need to get you through that, that, that experience. Yeah, two things <coughs> come to my mind about that because I was the observant uh, to you and I've watched you go through a couple of surgeries, and it's always the same. There's a great peace that takes over, and there's no fear. And I think sometimes it's important when, when young people hear older people talk about things like that, that they remember that, that it doesn't have to be a fearful experience because God is with us, especially if we have people praying. But what you're saying, doesn't, you know, it just doesn't happen at the last moment. It, it happens because for the months or years before, you've been preparing for these unnamed adversities. Yes, practice, I mean, you practice. and I right now are at an age where we have to, I mean, as gloomy as it sounds to some people, we have to plan for dying. We have to think about the possibility that somewhere in the next 10 years, one of us is going to have to say goodbye to the other. That's likely to happen. Who's going to say the goodbye? We don't know. But we need to prepare ourselves. What is that moment going to be like? What is life going to be like after that moment? And if you don't think about these things, if you don't chart the course and stay the course, then that moment comes and life falls apart. And you and I see this all the time. We see people who are shattered by adversities because they didn't discipline themselves in the easy moments. Remember my coach, my track coach's comment. He would say, Gordon, I want to make the practices painful so that the race is a pleasure. That's and he how, really meant that. Yes, and I think that's how I've seen you when you go through difficulty. You, you right away, you can go straight to the presence of God. And but you've been the same way. I've well, seen this in you. I think it's, it's a, <laughs> one of those disciplines that, that we have in our, our marital life is always ask yourself when you're headed toward something different, what is this going to demand from me if uh, you think about it as you, in a canoe? 
and that there's white water ahead. You've taught me this. Okay, so what am I going to need to know? What is my uh, disposition going to be like when I'm in the white water? How can I plan today for that five or ten years ahead? And we begin to practice that then so that when we get in the white water, it's easy. That's exactly right. I remember when, when, when we got leading up to the surgery that I asked God to give me three words yes. that, he would, um, that, that would be pounded deep into my soul like a nail. And, uh, and the three words that came were courage, appreciation, and deepening. And I decided that as I went into the hospital and faced these moments of very dangerous surgery, that those three words would mark my attitude toward myself, toward my doctor, and toward all the people around me. And I can remember when I was wheeled into the OR just before they put me out. I remember that the, the word for that moment was courage, courage, courage. And I kept saying that over and over again. Courage, Lord, give me courage. And when I came out and I was you know, back conscious again, now the operation word, operational word became appreciation. Thank everybody. Get your mind off yourself, off your discomfort. Keep saying thank you. Thank you to every nurse, every doctor, every orderly, even the lady that brings your dinner. Thank you. Even if the dinner's bad, thank you. Uh, because when you get into an attitude of appreciation, God fills your heart with a kind of joy, deepening. What am I going to learn from this? What does it mean? How can I leave here a deeper person than when I came? So in these ways, we discipline ourselves and we get ready for the adversities because they're going to come. I think we've done it enough. Do you really? I do. Well, it's just wonderful to sit here and watch you talk like that. It just kind of turns me on. I'm mean, really. <laughs> We're back to that, are we? <laughs> <coughs> let's pray. Let, let, let's get more holy again. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, Father, you gave us our laughing muscles first, and we thank you. We thank you that life can be very serious, and it can be very fun. And so this is so much more in this day where we can learn to appreciate your presence, the joy of friends, new insights, wonderful, wonderful food, and the beauty of your handiwork. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for these dear friends, these young men and women who are willing to receive us old guys into their lives for these days, um, to listen, to ask questions, to engage in conversation. Um, we love seeing the vitality of Jesus' power in them. And pray that because of things being said this week, uh, that we will all go down off this mountain in, in the appropriate time, stronger than ever, and more re resolute to, to being faithful to the living God, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.